Uh, I was told that uh, the audio didn't pick up what I was saying a few minutes ago, but that was our time of offering. And uh, normally we pass the plates uh, through the pews and we remember that this is an opportunity and uh, we have an opportunity all of the time, not just to give money and finances, but to give of ourselves, our resources, our talents, our gifts, our treasures to God with gladness and with joy. Uh, and that's an act of our worship. That's a part of our worship. So uh, you can still do that online today or anytime you'd like. Um, but be encouraged to express uh, the fullness of your gratitude to God in worship. He is worthy, and it is a joy to give. So we're on to plan B and plan C this morning. Uh, that's uh, sort of par for the course for this time of this season of our lives as we're adjusting to a whole different reality with all kinds of different things going on. I, uh, some of you uh, have worked from home this past week or two and are adjusting to that and all of the uh, different facets of what it means to worship from home. I saw a couple of memes this week I thought I'd share from you. Uh, the first is uh, a couple of photos of the Pope, just in fun and jest. If you have a Roman Catholic background or you're Catholic, I'm not intending to poke fun at the Pope. But uh, this is the Pope working from home, and uh, working from the office on the left, and then this is the Pope working from home, of course. Uh, and um, many of us maybe have been in meetings where someone showed up in a Zoom meeting this week and clearly they were working from home, forgot to shower, shave, haven't brushed their hair, uh, put on their work clothes, just uh, going to work in their pajamas uh, like they would otherwise. Others of us have found uh, different facets of uh, working from home or being at home or sequestered at home or uh, isolated, sheltering at home to uh, draw us into different habits and rhythms and patterns and maybe addictions. And so uh, here's another meme that I saw this, this week that I thought I'd share. It says, day four of quarantine and I've already eaten all of the food for the next 15 days. I don't know about you, but uh, it's easier to run to the refrigerator uh, when uh, I'm working from home than when, when I'm working from the office. Uh, let's pray together and uh, we'll dig into God's word. Please pray with me. And again, as we've been in worship, feel free to, to raise your hands, to kneel when we pray, to uh, stand however uh, God leads you. Uh, God, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for a Sabbath and for the Lord's Day and for the rhythm that you've given the world and your people and the church of taking a morning off uh, on the day from which Jesus was raised from the grave to spend time intentionally with one another and with you, looking to you, worshiping you, bow bowing down before you. We ask that you would continue to give us a posture outwardly and inwardly of worship as together we uh, open your word. Give us ears that are good to hear and eyes that are good to see and hearts that are good and fertile soil to receive your word. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word, that they would be taken to heart. If my words stray or deviate from your word in any way, may they be immediately forgotten. We pray these things in Christ the Lord. Amen. 
So on the chance that some of uh, the children are still with us this morning, because uh, even after Gladys' time with children, because we didn't dismiss them for classes like we normally do, maybe you've got some children with you in your household. Uh, I thought I'd do something a little bit different uh, to start off my time. I thought I'd begin with a story from one of my favorite children's series books, or book uh, series of children's books. It's called uh, the Read Aloud Bible Stories series. Uh, written by Ella Lindvall, and Karen and I ran across this series when our first child was young, and we began reading uh, stories from the Bible out of Ella Lindvall's books uh, then, way back then, to to our kids and have read them to all four of our kids for years, just kind of worn out some of these books in some ways. So I want to start with a book in volume, or a story from volume one of Ella Lindvall's books. The story is called the, the wind that obeyed, the wind that obeyed. So I'm going to show you the pictures. They're going to be up on the screen too. Uh, Come, said Jesus, get into the boat. Let's go for a ride. Jesus got into the boat. Jesus' friends got into the boat. Splash went the little waves. Splash, splash. Jesus' friends began to make the boat go. Pull, push, pull, push. But Jesus was tired. He laid down in the back of the boat and he went to sleep. Now while the boat was going, the wind started to blow. It blew the men's hair. It blew the men's clothes. It blew the water. Soon the little boat was rolling up and down, up and down. Then some water came into the boat. Splash went the big waves. Splash, splash. Jesus' friends got wet. They were afraid too. Let's tell Jesus, they said. Save us, Lord. Wake up, wake up. Jesus opened his eyes. He saw the water splash. He heard the wind blow. But he said, why are you afraid? I'm here. Then Jesus talked to the wind. He talked to the water. He said, shh, be still. And do you know what happened? The wind stopped blowing. The water stopped splashing. They both got still as could be. Jesus' friends looked around. Everything was quiet and safe. Who is Jesus, they said. Even the wind and the water do what he says. I know who Jesus is. Do you? Jesus made the wind. Jesus made the water. Jesus is God. And Ella Linval's account in her expansion of that story that I've read so, so, so many times and sometimes has brought tears to my eyes. Her expansion of the biblical story is absolutely accurate. Jesus had dominion over all of the elements of nature. That is true. But there's also so much more to the story, and we'll see this in a moment from Matthew's Gospel, which I'll read. But I want to put into context, give it a little context first. Matthew begins his gospel with the genealogy of Jesus, and then he goes into the birth narrative of Jesus, and then of Jesus' flight with his parents, not a flight, but a journey, a flying flight out of their homeland into Egypt for safety, 
from Herod. And then Matthew introduces the adult John the Baptist who then baptizes Jesus. Jesus is led off into the wilderness where he is tested or tempted by the devil for 40 days at the leading of the Spirit. Having completed that test and having completed it successfully, Jesus begins his public announcement by, or his public ministry by announcing, change your thinking, change your living, change everything really because the kingdom of God or the rule of God or the reign of God has come near. It's nearer than it's ever been. It's accessible to you in ways that it's never been before. It's available to you. So change everything now. And Jesus began calling to himself students, apprentices, disciples, and he invited them or he called them to follow him, which meant not only traveling where he traveled and going where he went, but it meant learning his ways, having his perspective, learning to live like Jesus lived so that one could become in ways as Jesus himself was. And then Matthew tells us that Jesus began to heal people, literally, quote, every disease and sickness among the people. This prolific healing ministry. And then comes chapters 5, 6, and 7 in Matthew's gospel. This collection of sort of the best of Jesus' teaching that we've come to know as the Sermon on the Mount. And then at chapter 8, Jesus begins five different accounts of, again, Jesus healing people. Healing, healing, healing all sorts of people. A man with leprosy, the child of a Roman soldier, actually a commander. The mother-in-law of one of his early disciples. A number of people who had been possessed by all sorts of evil spirits and demons. And then finally a man who had been paralyzed. Jesus heals and heals and heals and heals. But right in the middle of all that healing, Matthew inserts into his account of Jesus Uh, Jesus on a boat with his friends and more than that, which we'll see in just a moment as we read. I'm going to start in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 8, verse 18. Listen closely. You're going to have to kind of work hard this morning to do that. So listen closely. This is the Word of God. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake, that is the Sea of Galilee. This crowd who had gathered from Jesus healing people. Then a teacher of the law came to Jesus and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man, his favorite way of referring to himself, a way of kind of saying that he was not just the Son of God and had a relationship with God. And he was not just Lord having a relationship with his disciples, but he was the Son of all of humanity. So he would have a relationship with all of humanity. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Another disciple said to Jesus, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me. And let the dead bury their own dead. And that first part of this section is kind of hard to get our minds around. What exactly is Jesus saying? But the second part is not only more familiar, but it makes more sense to us. Verse 23, then Jesus got into the boat and his disciples followed him. 
Suddenly a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him saying, Lord, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. Jesus replied, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then Jesus got up and he rebuked the wind and he rebuked the waves and it became completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. And most of us have probably understood this passage to be all about Jesus having power to calm storms. Because that's how we were taught this passage. That's how we heard it as children. Jesus has power over the weather, power over the natural world. Jesus is powerful. Jesus must be divine. Jesus must be God. Yes, Jesus is God. And all of that was true and all of that is true. And yet there's more. But the more requires a closer look. All of this is where we're going to have to work a little harder this morning to get beyond the children's version. The story is a whole. What we've read is one unit. The first and second parts belong together. But because the first part is well more complicated, we often chop it off. It gets left out of children's books and out of devotions for young adults and sermons for grown-ups. Even the editors of most of our modern Bibles split this passage up. They put a break in between those two sections as if they were independent. But the two parts belong together and we're going to understand this passage better as we keep them together. And so here we go. Jesus had again been healing people. And every time Jesus healed people, word spread and crowds gathered because people love the spectacular and people love the unusual. And people want to be well. Sick people especially want to be healed. And all of this, including the crowds and the crowding of Jesus, was and is human nature. And Jesus was so often glad to accommodate. It was certainly part of his ministry to heal people, to love people through healing their physical ailments and infirmities. But there was also so much more. Jesus' mission was more than just healing people. He was after much more than that. If his only mission, or even if just the heart of his mission, was to make people physically well, then he would have done just that. He would have healed every person everywhere. He would have spent none of his time doing anything else, but instead he would have traveled and healed, traveled and healed, traveled and healed. But he didn't. And instead he got away from people. He took breaks from healing to do other things. Verse 18, when Jesus saw the crowd around him, in other words, the crowd that was wanting either to be healed or to see people see Jesus healing others, Jesus gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Like a military leader, he ordered his small company of disciple students to get in some boat in order to put some space between themselves and this crowd to cross the Sea of Galilee. 
And as they were moving toward the boat, a man came up to Jesus. Matthew calls him a teacher of the law. He had some credentials as an expert in the scriptures and the law of Moses. He was educated in the things that mattered to devout Jews. He had credentials. And this man whom Matthew later hence might have been or eventually become a disciple of Jesus now says to Jesus, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And we can learn several things from this man's only statement. He calls Jesus teacher, and the only people who call Jesus teacher in Matthew's gospel are not disciples of Jesus. Jesus' disciples call him Lord. Second, this man calls Jesus teacher, at least partly because the man values teaching. He values education. To him, education was what mattered, the mind and knowledge. Third, the man's statement is all about it himself, if we look closely. He himself is the subject. He himself is what it's all about. And he is probably implicitly saying, I see you've got this random collection or assortment of followers, students, disciples, fishermen, blue-collar folks in your little group or school right now. But I can add value to that group. I can add prestige to your team. I'm a teacher of the law. Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Are you with me? And Jesus says to this man so bluntly, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. In other words, you don't get it, brother. My way is a way of simplicity and even poverty and self-denial and humility and sacrifice. It is an adventure of being on the road where one may find oneself homeless. It is not an adventure of the academy and of the mind alone. I am a teacher of the law, yes, but I am so much more than that, Jesus would say. To follow me, one must deny himself and not puff oneself up. And so Jesus corrects this man's understanding of discipleship and following him. And that we all know. And that's all that we know of that conversation. And literally the last that we hear of that man or Jesus' interaction with him. And we go on. Another disciple, and this is how or why we think that the teacher might have been or become a disciple of Jesus at some point. Verse 21, another disciple said to Jesus, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Jesus had given orders. Let's now cross the lake But this second person or disciple of Jesus retorts, Lord, first, let me go take care of some family matters. It's not even clear from the context if this man's father had even died yet. Let me go take care of some matters. He calls Jesus Lord, which implies primacy, and at the same time says something else or someone else is first in his life, must be first at that moment. And of course, we know that Jesus valued 
family relationships. Jesus held in highest regard the Jewish law, a part of which, or an element of which, was honoring one's father and mother. And yet Jesus must be, he's either first in one's life or he's nothing. He must be the first in one's life or nothing. He is Lord or nothing. And so Jesus replies again so bluntly to the man, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. The first thing Jesus always calls people to do is to follow him. And in the words of Augustine, when unbelievers bury a dead body, the dead are burying the dead. Or in John Calvin's understanding, the only ones who are truly living are the ones who are putting Jesus first in their lives. The second man had already said yes to Jesus, but now and later qualifies that a bit and says he's got some more important things to do now. And Jesus calls him back. Jesus says to the man, it's either Jesus or others. Follow me. And Jesus corrects this man's understanding also of discipleship, of following Jesus. And now we finally get to the boat. Then Jesus got into the boat, verse 23, and his disciples followed him. And Matthew likely intentionally puts the words disciples and followed right next to each other in this sentence. So their juxtaposition can't be missed. Then Jesus got into the boat and his disciples followed him. They began to go where he went. This is what true disciples do. They follow. Verse 24. Suddenly a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. The word translated into English as storm here is seismos in Greek, from which we get the word seismology. Seismos, where it was normally translated in the scriptures earthquake. A furious earthquake came upon the lake, and there are three powerful earthquakes in Matthew's gospel. One when Jesus dies, this, another when Jesus is resurrected, and then this seismos, or quake, when Jesus is on the lake with his disciples. There are three seminal events, or three events that we could describe as pivotal, Matthew might say to which he attaches an earthquake in his account, Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection. But before that, Jesus' explanation on a boat to his disciples of what it means to follow him, to live in his way, to go after him, to have him as first and foremost. And what Jesus said certainly rattled his disciples. But Jesus was sleeping. Matthew continues. The disciples went and woke him up saying, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. And the Greek word translated sound can also mean rescue or keep safe or make well or heal or restore to health. Jesus, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. Jesus replied, you have little faith. Why are you so afraid? Then Jesus got up and he rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm, and the men were amazed. Jesus' disciples are now merely men. Up until this point, Matthew had called them disciples, and now he calls them only men. 
The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and waves obey. And so in some ways, Jesus' disciples have taken a step back in their fear, a step back in their question, a step back in their doubt, a step back in their wondering. And having been rattled and shaken, and having had their faith or their trust in Jesus tested, and having had the smallness of their faith exposed, Jesus' disciples are now reassessing what kind of person is this really? Even nature, even creation obeys him. Who is this Jesus and what might it mean to follow him? And so the gospel writer Matthew deliberately inserts discipleship stories into his healing, into the healing miracles of Jesus. And so Jesus calming the storm is more than just another of the miracles or signs showing the power and authority and identity of Jesus. But rather it is an exposing of the still smallness of his disciples' faith and so also their obedience. And Jesus calling them to greater faith and so also greater obedience because even greater challenges, risks, and dangers than a storm would come their way, would they face soon, would they experience soon, if and as they continued to follow Jesus and go in his way. And so we learn in this passage that faith is not simply a passive acceptance of truths or a weak resignation that just believes, but rather faith is depicted here and elsewhere in the Gospels and the Scriptures as this courageous confidence in Jesus that is sufficient for the occasion or whatever the task at hand may require. We all experience fear. And to a degree, fear is good. There are things that we should have a healthy fear of, be afraid of. But Jesus would have us be free of excessive fear and replace that instead with faith, not in teacher, though Jesus was rabbi, but in Lord who has the power and the dominion and the authority over even all of creation. Jesus seems to have stepped away from his healing ministry for a time in order to help people not only physically, but now also with their wills, with their minds, cognitively as well. Jesus was not leaving behind his concern for people's bodies, but instead was reaching beneath or beyond a person's body into its true sources, into who we truly are, into a person's mind, into a person's heart, grabbing the whole soul of a person. Jesus was not merely, his mission was not merely to heal people, but to broadly help people. To save people, not just physically, but to save us completely. Jesus came not just to please, but also to grow people in faith and in trust that we might be one with our maker. Jesus came not just to cure diseases, but to make disciples. 
And clearly Jesus doesn't want disciples merely at any cost. He's willing to speak firmly to those who are already disciples or to those who are not yet disciples and say to them, this is what it looks like. You may have an idea of what it's like to be with me, but Jesus calls us into more. Frederick Bruner says this right here in these words. Matthew inserts discipleship into the stories, into the miracles to teach that faith in Jesus must be united with obedience. An unrelieved series of healings might give the church the impression that her main mission in life is the priestly one of comforting, consoling, and healing. But while the church exists indeed to comfort and to grace, she also exists no less centrally, and in Matthew's gospel, maybe most centrally, to challenge and to disciple. And so here we are in the age of coronavirus. Many of us are afraid. There is stress. There is anxiety. Every day seems worse than the day before. We do not know what the next day is going to hold. And certainly Jesus is in the boat with us. He's in the storm of coronavirus, comforting, assuring, saying you don't need to be afraid. But he's also saying your faith does not need to be so small because God's got all of this. And not only does he want to comfort us through this trial, through this season, but he also wants to grow us into people who understand him, into people who trust him, into people who will follow. So that we're not merely cowering in the back of a boat, totally isolated, sheltered in our own homes and afraid, but that we are people who trust the one who goes out into the storm boldly. Because there is a time and the time is now for some and the time will come for others. Whereas followers of Jesus, we are called to help those who are sick. To make sacrifices of ourselves. To forget about ourselves and how educated we are and how much we have and how good we are and what maybe we can contribute to Jesus' body. It's time, Jesus says, to trust in him and to put him first, regardless of what that means. We say we have to do this with our family, and we may well be. We may well do, and that thing with our family for our family may be really important, but Jesus says, I am Lord. And so we can trust him and we can go with him and we can know that he is Lord. And through this journey of coronavirus, we're not putting our faith or our obedience on hold, but rather through the trial and through the suffering, Jesus gives us an opportunity to grow. By his grace, may we grow in him, may we grow in faith, may we grow in obedience to what he would have us do and who he would have us become. And as we do, he will be glorified. We will find strength. His will will be done and his kingdom will come. Let's pray together.
God, we are yours. Make us yours. Make us wholly available to you. As you spoke to the teacher of the law, as you spoke to the man who wanted to go back and be with his family when it looked like things were getting tough, grow us into your people. By your grace, we pray. Amen.